I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We're down in chapter 25 as we make our way through this. And we're going to talk about uh, the Ark of the Covenant today. How much do you know about the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, some people know some things about it. That's a picture of what a uh, Jewish website thinks it uh, was probably like. It's been gone a long, long time, and uh, nobody knows where it is or if it still exists. But it was very, very, very important to the Jews and to uh, Old Testament Judaism in particular. And uh, you can see it's an impressive thing. The word ark is a Hebrew word that um, basically means box or container. And uh, it was always kind of strange to me how you could have this. Well, that makes sense with that word. But Noah's ark, uh, well, it was a big container of animals and food and Noah's family, of course. And even the little basket that Moses was put in in the bulrushes is referred to as an ark as well. So it's something that is a container. Usually it means like a chest or something like that. You can see that. You can see the poles that are through the rings. Uh, we'll read in just a moment. They were designed so that the ark could be carried without touching it. And uh, they were to remain in there at all times. <coughs> you can see it's very expensive. Look at all of the gold that is on it. Um, sometimes we think that the things of God are supposed to be done on the cheap. Well, not when you look at the furnishings in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Uh, they were the very, very best. And uh, never, ever second rate for God. If it bears His name, it's worthy of our best. And this was done, as we saw last week, through free will offerings. And uh, the people gave. They had a heart for it. So when we look in the 25th chapter of Exodus, and we look starting at verse 10, we'll hear the word of the Lord. Verse 10, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. The pure gold means refined gold. They had technology to do that. And where does the gold go? Inside and out. You shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and you shall put uh, the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them and the poles shall be in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it and you shall put into the ark the testimony that's the stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments on them. The testimony which I will give you. Verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat 
of pure gold. No wood in it. That's the lid. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim. Those are angels. Cherub is a singular. Cherubim is plural. Uh, make them of gold, of hammered work. Kind of sculpted, I guess you would say. And you shall make them uh, at the two ends of the mercy seat. Now make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. In other words, they're attached and you can't take them apart. And the cherubim shall face or stretch out their wings above covering the mercy seat with their wings, kind of making an arch, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. They're not facing out, they're facing in. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And here's the most important part. And there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look at this most important piece of furniture for the tabernacle and later the temple give us understanding and inspire us strengthen us encourage us as we learn about this and we see what it means and father i thank you that none of this is dependent upon me i submit myself to you and ask you to speak through your word this morning to your people and speak to those who are lost as well and draw them to Jesus Christ and faith in Him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, when we talk about this ark, what are we going to say? Well, the first thing that I noticed in here was its priority. A tabernacle has not been built yet. There's nothing like it. There's no furnishings. None of the other stuff is done. God said, build an ark. Now, why would this be the very first thing that he tells Moses to build? Because this is the priority. Whenever you get into the temple of Solomon, this is the only thing that they took out of the tabernacle to put into the temple. Everything else was made new. And it also, when you look in the book of Deuteronomy, you find something else that uh, most people don't realize. Moses is the one who built this ark. And so this is something that is a priority in the heart of God. We probably ought to know something about it. Now secondly, you'll notice its purpose. It seems to me that the purpose of this ark is basically the justification for the tabernacle itself. The reason for the tabernacle is the ark. The ark is the reason for the tabernacle. What do I mean by that? The tent or the tabernacle that is built is mainly to protect and to be a dwelling place 
for the ark. And behind that veil in the Holy of Holies, this ark of the covenant was set back there. And uh, that is the place where, as we just read, God said, I will meet with you on the basis of the mercy seat, the basis of what takes place in that situation. And so uh, this is a reminder of God's presence. It's a reminder of the covenant. <clears throat> in fact, later on, they were going to add some other things that would be inside the ark. Not only would the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone, be in there, but also Aaron's rod. When you read about Aaron and his rod, God did something amazing. He made the dead, cold, uh, wooden rod of Aaron blossom. That was put in there. And then also, later they took a, a golden bowl and they put the manna that they had eaten for 40 years inside of the ark. Why would they do that? I think that the reason the Ten Commandments were in there is because you need the mercy of God to cover your breaking of the law of God. And the mercy seat is on top of that, of course. I think the rod of Aaron is a constant reminder that only God can bring life, and he can bring it out of death. And it reminds us that before we were saved, we were dead, helpless and hopeless, with total inability to get to God or to please God, and yet he's the one, Ephesians chapter 2 is one example of this, but God who is rich in mercy made us alive, amen? And we are alive in Christ, the budding rod of Aaron, life coming out of death. And I think that the manna is in there to remind us that as the people of God, as the sheep of his pasture, as his redeemed ones, as the ones that he has brought out of spiritual Egypt, bondage and death, <clears throat> he is able to feed us. He is able to nurture us and he is able to sustain us in all situations. This is kind of what the ark teaches us. But the third thing that happens is there is a beautiful, beautiful picture about this ark. Now, when you read about the ark, as we just did, one of the things that you find is the material that the ark was made out of. The material the ark was made out of. Just two things. Very simple. Wood and gold. Wood and gold. It's all God required. It's all he wanted. And that's all it contained. But when you look at this and you think about the ark, and you think about what it was used for, just in case you don't know, or need a reminder, the ark was behind the veil of the holiest place, the holy of holies. And you couldn't just walk in there. Now, you better not go in there unless you're the high priest. But even if you are the high priest, you can't just go back there anytime you want. One day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the priest had to go through all kinds of rituals to get himself ready to go back behind the veil. Because behind the veil was the presence of God. And the reason the priest would get himself dressed up, well, cleaned up first, dressed up 
offer sacrifices for his own sin and other rituals. <clears throat> then he would go back there with the blood of a sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the lid, the mercy seat, between the two angels. And as he did that, he would be confessing and praying about the sins of Israel. So all of Israel, all of the Jews, were dependent upon somebody else to go before God on their behalf with a sacrifice that would be acceptable to God. Now, tradition tells us that uh, when the priest went back there, that it could be a very, very, very scary thing to go into the presence of God. We think about running in the presence of God, sitting in his lap, giving him a high five. Or some people, I heard someone say one time, well, I'll tell you one thing. When I get to heaven, I've got some questions for him. As if God is accountable to you. Let the irony of that sink in. Even John the Apostle the beloved disciple in the first chapter of Revelation, he saw the glorified Christ and he fell over as a dead man. The holiness of God is overwhelming. Well, the high priest knew that if he walked back there and he was not ready, he was a dead man. And it said that they would put bells on the hem of his garment so that if he was stricken, they would know it when the bells rang. Then they thought, well, how are we going to get him out? We can't go back there to get him. We've got to get him out of there. So they would tie a rope around him that would be outside of the veil so that if they heard those bells, they would just pull the rope and they would pull him out. Uh, this was a very, very, very serious thing that was happening. And so when we think about the ark, and we think about meeting with God, the Jews, in their idea of being with God and meeting with God, there was a certain amount of legitimate fear that they had. Am I qualified? Can I go into the presence of God? And even the high priest, wouldn't you imagine, would probably kiss his wife before he went back there, hug his children, thinking, if I did anything wrong... I'll never see them again. And so every time he went in, great honor, of course it was. Of course it was. To be that person, great honor, great responsibility. But I would imagine there was also a great, dear, a great deal of trepidation, a great deal of fear as they did that, and a sigh of relief when he walked out. To be able to come out of the presence of God Whew. Don't have to do that again for another year. Now, when we think about that, and we think about what they did and what they went through, and the picture that all of this makes, it, of course, points to Jesus Christ, who alleviates our fears. Jesus Christ, the one who welcomes us into his presence. Jesus Christ, the one who makes us worthy to come into the presence of God. And Jesus Christ, the one who put his own blood on the mercy seat in heaven so that there's nothing else that should be done, 
could be done or needs to be done to make us fit to go into the presence of God. And when he died on the cross, you'll remember the Bible says that the veil in the temple was torn. And it was torn from top to bottom as if the Lord wanted to make it clear man didn't do this. Man would do it from bottom to top. God did it from top to bottom. And what was the purpose of tearing the veil in the temple that separated the holiest place and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat from everybody else? It was as if God was saying, the barrier is gone. You no longer have to be afraid. The blood has been applied. It is finished. And it's totally finished. And forever finished. We call that the finished work of Christ. That's what we trust in for salvation. And the Lord is saying, welcome into my presence. Nothing, nothing to fear. It's all been paid for. And you are my redeemed children. And that's a wonderful thing to think that what the Jews of the Old Testament, even people like David, could not do, you and I can do anytime, anywhere, and for any reason, we can come into the presence of God and enter in to the Holy of Holies because the blood of Christ has been put on the mercy seat. Well, how does this ark picture Jesus even outside of that? Well, the two materials it was made of, gold and wood, give us an insight. The wood is acacia wood, acacia wood. Now, acacia wood grew in the desert. It was available, and uh, you were not going to find many trees in the desert, but you could find acacia trees. You know, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah about Jesus that he grew up as a root or a sprout in dry ground. Well, that's interesting because acacia wood thrives in the desert. The acacia wood also, the tree, also had large, large thorns growing on it. And it reminds us that when Jesus came to earth, the only crown he was given was a crown of thorns, right? They also, in those days, would take the acacia tree and at night they would go to the tree and they would hammer some type of spike into it, pull the spike out, and the sap that came out was used, uh, maybe you've heard of gum arabica. They would uh, take it out, and they would use it as a balm, as a salve. They would use it medicinally, and they would sell it. They would trade for it. And um, so it reminds us that Jesus, the sprout that grew up out of dry ground, the one who wore the crown of thorns, and the one who was wounded for our transgressions, and he is the healing, he is the balm for our sin-sick souls. And this acacia wood gives us a picture of that, the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about the chest being made of wood, why didn't God just Leave it like that. There's nothing wrong with wood. Our Lord's Supper table down here is made of wood. Nothing wrong with that. You probably have wooden furniture, uh, furniture in your home, stained and uh, varnished, and uh, you like it. 
But God said, no, I want to show more than this. Because as he told Moses, take gold. Now make sure you refine the gold and that all of the impurities are out of the gold. And then take that and overlay the wood. The wood in the poles, the wood in the chest. How much do we do? Just what people see? No. God told us it's inside as well as outside. You know, we live lives where we hide a lot of things. You may be a person that um, you look this morning just immaculate. Everybody goes, wow, you, that person really takes care of themselves. But if we saw the room where you did that in, we would wonder if anybody was hurt in the explosion. Sometimes we fix the outside of things, don't we? And we make sure that the outside of the house looks nice. The inside, maybe not so much. Or maybe we say, well, keep the living room nice. Company may come, but the bedrooms are not. There's a lot of things that I think that's kind of a metaphor for life. And we come to church and we know how to sing. We know when it's appropriate to say amen. We know how to smile. We know when to raise our hands. We know all of that kind of stuff. But if we could see inside of your heart like God does, we might even wonder if you're a Christian. There's a song I heard years ago. Could I be called a Christian if everybody knew the secret thoughts and feelings for everything I do? Could they, they see the likeness of Christ in me each day? And could they hear him speaking in every word I say? Well, that's a good question. That's a good question because God said in the box, I don't want it just played it on the outside, cover the inside. So why would he do this? Why not make it all out of pure gold? Or why not just have it made of wood? Because where the wood represents the humanness of Christ, fully human, as we saw in Sunday school, the gold represents his majesty and his deity. And if you were to see the Lord Jesus today, would you be seeing a human? Yeah, yeah. He's still fully human in heaven. We'll be that way for eternity. That's why he can sympathize with us, identify with us, defend us, all of those things you had in your Sunday school lesson today. But there's something different about him. Have you ever noticed after the resurrection of Christ, nobody seemed to recognize him? What, did he look different? I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing, especially when I read in the book of Revelation about John's reaction to him, nobody knew him better than John. And even he fell over as a dead man. And I think it's because if you were to see the man Christ Jesus today, the acacia wood is covered in gold. And his deity shines through his humanity. His glory shines out like the gold covering the wood on the box, on the ark of the covenant. So two natures. You've got a God and man, 100% God, not half and half, and 100% man. And it's shown up in the acacia wood and the gold very, very beautifully. But there's also something else that uh, I want to share with you that I think is extremely important. 
Because that is, this box shows us the power of grace. You know, we think about grace because of John Newton as being amazing. And we all talk about amazing grace. But do you ever think about the fact that grace is powerful? One of the things when you think about the acrostic tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, and then the I is, anybody know? Irresistible grace. That speaks of power, doesn't it? The power to take a dead sinner and make him alive. The power to take someone who is faithless and give them faith to believe in Jesus Christ. The power to take someone who, according to Romans 3, doesn't seek after God, is dead in trespasses and sins, and doesn't understand anything about God. Now all of a sudden, you get it. And you remember that day you were saved. The gospel finally made sense to you. In the book of Hosea, God says to Israel, I drew you in with cords of love. What a beautiful picture of salvation. He transformed you by his powerful grace so that you wanted to trust Christ. You wanted your sins forgiven. You wanted to repent and be a follower of Jesus Christ. My dad used to say that if you take an old hen and you put her in a mud puddle, all she's going to do is be mad as a wet hen. You ever heard that? But if you could somehow change that hen into a duck, a duck will go and hunt up a mud puddle. And he said, and the same is true with us. Before we're saved, the things of God just make us mad. They bore us, they agitate us, they disgust us, all of those kind of things. But when the Spirit of God through His grace changes us, then all of a sudden, what do we do? We hunt up a church. We want to go to a Bible study. We read the Word of God on our own. We sing praises to the Lord, even when we're just driving in our car. Why? Because our nature has been changed by the power of grace. How does that relate to the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the mercy seat didn't have any wood in it. Pure gold. Hammered out the cherubim on each end of that thing. It's the top. It's the lid for the ark. And it's called the mercy seat because uh, God is going to extend his mercy to the people of Israel when the high priest properly sprinkles the blood on that mercy seat. And the people sins that then are atoned for. Now again, only on one day a year, and only one person could do this, and um, only after he purified his own sins, right? And this had to be done over and over and over and over. I mean, how many overs would we have to do from the time of Moses all the way up until the temple was destroyed? It's a lot of overs. A lot of things that need to be done. And that's why the book of Hebrews says, yeah, but for us, we have a better sacrifice because Jesus entered into the real holiest place in heaven, sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat, and then he did something that the high priest would never do. Aaron wouldn't do it. Nobody else would ever do it. The high priest, as we said earlier, didn't go in there and make himself comfortable. The Holy of Holies didn't have a beanbag chair. 
You went in, and you then got out. And if it were you, how quickly would you get out? I'd be out of there fast, a lot faster than I leave this building. I'd want out, brother. Jesus did something else. He offered it, and then he went. And he sat down. Why? Sacrifice is paid for. He has nothing to fear. No wonder he said so often, fear not. And that's why when he died on the cross, he goes from praying and saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then there's this point in the middle where he doesn't call him Father. He calls him, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He shrieks it out. That's when he became sin for us, separated from his Father. And how do we know that everything was taken care of? Because before he died, he's back to Father again. Into your hands I commit my spirit. From Father to my God to Father again. And this is what Jesus has done for us in his once for all, permanent, all-sufficient sacrifice that totally paid for and covered your sin with his own blood. It's good news. We don't reenact that. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to do anything. The price has all been paid. And after the resurrection of Jesus, the Bible says in John 20, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. Does that sound like anything to you? You know that the other books of the Bible tell us that when Jesus is resurrected, he left his grave clothes. That's where I presume the, they, you would know where the body has been laying. And there's probably blood and everything on it. And there's an angel on one end and an angel on the other and the blood of Christ in the middle. What do you suppose that's a symbol of? And I looked at that and then I thought, am I crazy? Before I preach that, I better check it out. Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul, good guy, he's with the Lord now, wrote about it. So I'm not nuts. It says, and then there is John 20, 12. Mary Magdalene had come to the tomb of Christ only to find it empty. As she stooped down to look in, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. Back in Exodus 25, two carved angels took their places at either end of the mercy seat. Now all we need to do is to connect the dots. God desires to meet with his people and the blood of the spotless lamb is the only means by which that meeting is made possible. The mercy seat 
of the Old Testament and the blood sprinkled upon it by the high priest prefigured Christ to come. Christ did come and Christ did make the sacrifice and Christ was raised from the dead. Make no mistake about it. These are historical realities. The tabernacle was real. The Ark of the Covenant was real. The mercy seat was real. The cross was real. The empty tomb was real. And a real woman stooped to look at real angels. Christ is our mercy seat. There in and through Christ, God meets us. The dots are indeed connected. Praise his name for that. So I want you to think about when we look at that box and the significance of it. Don't make an idol out of it like King Saul did, thinking that if he had the ark, he'd win all of his battles. Don't make the mistake of thinking it's just another piece of furniture like the poor man did when the ark was on a cart coming back from the Philistines and instead of using the poles like they were supposed to they put it on a cart just like the Philistines did hey folks God doesn't want us to do his work in the world's way we're different and this guy steadied the ark and paid for it with his life we're talking about something here that is extremely important but don't leave it in the Old Testament either Carry it on over into the New Testament and see that the mercy seat, the mercy seat that really matters, the one in heaven, has blood on it, but not blood that's going to have to be offered again and again and again and again and again. But once for all, Jesus paid it all, and he did it for you. If you've never trusted him, you need to trust Jesus today. Repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in the full payment of Christ for your sin. And if you have trusted him, quit taking that for granted and think about what it means. When the harvest is ended and my work on earth is through, when the last mile is traveled and I've sung my final song, if I'm called to give an answer at heaven's judgment seat, then let the blood of Calvary speak for me. And may it write me down as righteous where no righteousness has been, shielding me from wrath and judgment as it covers all my sin. For there's no work that I've accomplished, nor my goodness would I plead, just let the blood of Calvary speak for me. For there may be a friend who'd witness or speak a word so kind, but his voice would be so feeble at such an awesome time. But there's a voice that cries for mercy ringing through eternity. So just let the blood of Jesus speak for me and let it write me down as righteous where no righteousness has been, shielding me 
from wrath and judgment while it covers all my sin. For there's no work that I've accomplished, nor my goodness would I plead. Just let the blood of Calvary speak for me. And that's the only hope you've got. The blood of Jesus on the mercy seat for you. What a picture God gives us in his art. Heavenly Father, thank you for making it so clear. We don't have to guess. We don't have to stumble around. We don't have to hope that the good outweighs the bad or that something we've done will make up for everything that we've messed up. Jesus has paid the price. Thank you, Lord. We rest in that. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Sure. Before we go, a couple of announcements. Isaac, come on up.